Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham, a show at the intersection of sports, sports media, Hollywood, and hopefully life itself. I'm the host and executive producer, Ed. In this episode, we huddle with Janie McCauley, a longtime sports reporter for the Associated Press, who started her career in her home state of Washington before moving to San Francisco, where she's covered just about every sport in the Bay Area and beyond. We discuss how Ichiro Suzuki helped her develop as a reporter and her longtime friendship with Dusty Baker who seems to be about the perfect skipper for the Houston Astros in a season where fans, now back in the ballparks, made it clear how they felt about the team and its players. To borrow a title from my old employer, this is Outside the Lines with Janie McCauley. You're a Cougar from Washington State, and I'm a Husky from Washington, so a little bit of oil and water for us. Well, 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 well. My my late grandfather was a Pac-8 hurdle champ and rode for Washington during the boys in the boat time, not not with those guys, but um, my my late father was uh, Washington Law School, so don't hold it against me. I've got I've got some good Washington ties too. Well, I, I'm not from. Uh, are you from the state of Washington originally? I am. I yeah. am a little town called Leavenworth. It's a Bavarian tourist town, a couple hours over the mountains from Seattle. We'd go to one Sonics game a year. Best day of my <laughs> best day of my year every year. How did you, what brought you to sports reporting? It is a male dominated world, both sports and reporting. What drew you to being a sports reporter? Well, it, it's, it didn't quite start that way. I was a, I was a basketball nut as a kid, you know, just one, one Sonics game a year. And I, I wrote to every NBA team when I was 13 and, and I started getting back materials and that, that Supersonics team just gave me a love for basketball. And um, in Leavenworth, I had a computer programming class that just caused me fits my junior year. And so I was able to work out a little deal with the town weekly newspaper and uh, my block schedule of 90 minutes a day. I started going to the, to the newspaper and uh, wrote a profile on a kid named Kurt Ranta who was playing basketball for the University of Portland and and kind of had some good advice to go to Washington State for for journalism and it it sort of took off from there I got a good start there and freelancing for Seattle papers when they needed people and AP and the Boise paper and, and for Vandal football so uh I guess I fell into it and, and had a little bit of luck along the way and some good, good timing. So computer programming drove you to be a sports reporter? <laughs> I think it did. And uh, I had my parents' support and the counselor to, and, and two editors at the weekly newspaper who said, come see what we do. And what has been the journey? What has been the ups and downs of getting to a place where 
you know, you're a, a big name in the business now. You're obviously work for a, a major organization in the AP. What, what has been the biggest challenge for you uh, as a woman in a, in a male-dominated world? I've had very good timing, Ed. I uh, joined the AP in Seattle. I freelanced for the AP during college in Pullman. And so that was uh, a great start. And then the Mariners signed Ichiro. <laughs> and mm. so I, I give some credit to Ichiro too for my, for my timing. Um, we could not produce enough copy on the Mariners in 2001 when they were winning they won 116 games and um, clinched right after September 11th. There were so many emotional stories. I, I've had very good timing and, and taken advantage of that and had very few issues um, as a woman. I've, I've had great mentors, men and women mentors, at every stop. Um, at the Oregonian as an intern at the Lewiston Tribune in Idaho and uh, all the papers and, and people who have continued to mentor me through, through to this day. And so there are a lot of great women working in the Bay area here who I've learned from and um, others who have paved the way with more difficult paths. Certainly um, I've had a handful of issues and I've been very, very fortunate to, to build some great relationships um, with players, athletes, and coaches, and executives who I cover. And I think that's the most important thing for me, has been building these trusting relationships. You mentioned Ichiro Suzuki and that that rookie year. Well, I mean, he was, what, 27 when he was a rookie? <laughs> <laughs> Put air quotes sure. around yep. rookie. But what was, what was the sort of – that was your first sort of big – stage gig because you know he was international news not just national news um what did you learn from that what did you take from that what are some moments you remember that helped you you know maybe confirm this is the right job for me well he was a phenomenon at that point i, I mean now we see shohei otani doing doing things unimaginable right uh, as a mm. two-way star but but ichiro um I learned, Ed, by watching Ichiro, I learned how to observe and, and uh, attention to detail, finding things that he did from the, from the little stick he used to massage his foot every day before mm -hmm. he went out to the field or his, his routine before he stepped in the batter's box with that deep stretch. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody can probably still see that when he would he would um, do this whole stretching regimen. And um, I also learned a lot from listening to the Japanese media mm. who had a focus of covering Ichiro while we were covering a Mariners team that was winning all of these games and clinching after September 11th. And perhaps that sort of uh, trained me to cover Barry Bonds because mm. I was covering a home run chase in the midst of covering a team as well. And Lou Pinella was so thoughtful to me and so thoughtful to the needs of the Japanese media. And so I really appreciated 
that introduction in Seattle to covering big league baseball. I had done four summers of short season, a mm. Northwest league before that, but, um, it was a, it was a really special year to be in Seattle. Um, and, and part of, part of that history in a, in a year where they, they clinched right after September 11th. So there were some really intense moments, I guess you would say for, for many different reasons that year. And, and was it that work that started opening more doors for you uh, beyond Seattle? I do believe so. I, I was able to cover a lot of these Ichiro stories and, and help out on other stories. And they, the AP asked me to transfer to San Francisco in August, 2002 and, and immediately um, thrown in on the, on the giants who were headed to a world series. And that's actually Dusty Baker's last world series before this one with the Astros was that, seven game heartbreaking defeat for the giants um, to the angels. And you developed a relationship with dusty during that time. Yeah. Yes. And he has just been wonderful. I've, I've been up to, to his home in Granite Bay a couple of times and picked collard greens with him in his garden and sampled his wines and um, spent some time with him when he was out of the game and still really wanted to get back and ended on his terms. And at 72, he is, he is getting that opportunity perhaps to end this thing the way he hoped and, um, you know, honoring his late father in the process. And when he was out of the game, he, he cherished getting to see his son, Darren play at, at Cal Berkeley. And he wasn't, wasn't bitter. He was mm. accepting the things in his life he was able to do during those, those stints away from baseball, even though he really yearned to get back again and on that top dugout step and, and manage again. And he gets a job that may be the most complicated job Ooh. he's ever had. The Astros, of course, were caught cheating, stealing signs. And, you know, we're, we're Dodgers and Angels fans. We've decided since they're in the American National League, we can be both. Uh-huh. And, you know, my sons have a deep hatred for Houston, as do a lot of baseball and sports fans. Um, was he the right person to step into that role? Because that's, that's really tricky to always get booed, to always be um, seen as cheaters, which he had nothing to do with. Obviously he wasn't there, but was he the right person for that role? And if so, why? Absolutely. Um, here's a, here's an unflappable manager late in his career who's seen it all as a player. I'm, I mean, dating back to his, his time playing with, with Hank Aaron and, uh, just, Everything he saw from discrimination, he, he getting getting booed at every ballpark um, with the Astros and banging trash cans and all of the things that we we saw in the stands uh, when when they started hitting the road with fans in the stadiums again were things that weren't going to phase Dusty, but he was certainly going to stand up for his players and. That's what he did. I mean, just when they when they hit the road for their first 
road trips um, outside of Houston. Dusty said, we will, we will not tolerate things being thrown on the field. We, we will be treated with respect. I mean, he came out and, and said, let's, let's behave ourselves, uh, you know, to everybody. Let's, um, let's be respectful. And certainly he understood the anger that many people felt toward, toward the Astros for that scandal. And uh, it seems like he has been just the perfect fit there. And um, the players love Dusty. They love how he is fair. He is honest. He is communicative. He cares. He's been through it at every level. Yeah, there was a nice piece uh, by one of his former players uh, on ESPN.com the other day. And it was just riveting to hear this ex-player talk about Dusty Baker. You know, I played professional football and, you know, I had some really good coaches, but I also had some just awful people as coaches. And it made me sort of yearn for someone like Dusty who both challenges you and loves and supports you at the same time. Um, and it was just a really nice piece. This was a player. I saw who, that. Yeah, it was late in his career and he'd been injured and got traded and, you know, was on the bench and was not happy. And he just, Dusty wouldn't let up, wouldn't stop believing in him, wouldn't stop, you know, challenging him. Uh, it was it was really a, a terrific piece to read. It sounds like it lines up very much with your experience with Dusty. Absolutely. And this, this player had also just was mourning the loss of his father. Mm. And um, Dusty's father was still alive at that point, but Dusty had a a relationship with his father that he cherishes. Um, he's honoring his, his dad in this World Series. And so I think Dusty is human. That's the one thing. He, he, he is not going to pretend that he's been perfect. And, and uh, I think that's what, what guys love about him. Um, guys and gals, right? I mean, he yeah. just, he's relatable and he cares. And um, he's real. Yeah, that's the thing, covering sports as long as I have, and I'm sure you have. We used to have a term called, we used to ask each other when we left a meeting with a coach, is that a fraud or a real person? Because sometimes you never know. You know, you get the sales pitch, you get the you know big smile and the handshake and all the quotes you want, but you're always sort of left wondering, you know, does this person really care? Do they mean what they say? And so it's refreshing to read about Dusty and being in such a difficult situation, something he had nothing to do with, to step in to that void and speak for the team. It, ha it has to have given so much comfort to those players to allow Dusty to sort of take the lead than them, than them having to take the lead on all of this. It sure did. And it gave Dusty a purpose that he was still craving, right? Um, it gave him a purpose and uh, he wasn't through and what a challenge at that stage of his career. Yeah. I wonder if he goes back, if it's, you know, an up, you know, team that's been struggling or, you know, a small market team. I wonder if it was that, and I don't know if you've talked to him about it, but I wonder if it was part of that. I mean, obviously it's a great team. They have great players. You don't make a world series without that roster. Um, but I wonder if that was part of the reason he said yes is I'm ready for this. Yes. And Ed, he had been ready for some other openings that, that never 
you know, he said he inquired about openings different times and never even received calls back. Mm. And it wasn't something where he felt discriminated against by man and but rather his age and his salary requirements. Um, mm. You know, he, he really felt like, am I going to get this opportunity again? I'm not so sure I will. Um, because he had put some feelers out and, and just gotten nothing out of those uh, at different times. And I think that was a bit hurtful. Uh, not bitter, but not yeah. bitter for him, but uh, he wasn't so sure it was going to, going to come. And, and what an opportunity and a, a, a sense, again, of, of purpose for him uh, in this game. For that organization, they had to have really seen in Dusty a unique, qualified person because you can't just hire someone, anyone, after going through that, especially when the players were not punished at all, right? So you as the organization have to know, you know, these guys are going to get hammered out there. So it had to go through the thinking of, you know, you mentioned his age, his experience. I, I, I'm starting to call that wisdom now as I get Absolutely. older. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. But they had to see that wisdom and say, you know, we need someone like this. Because you go with a 40-year-old person or, you know, somebody younger who doesn't have his track record with players, especially, that had to go deeply into their thinking of, of why they would bring Dusty in at this time, wouldn't you think? Yes, and how fortunate that he was available, right? <laughs> um, he, he had mended some, some relationships with the Giants. He was working in an, in an advisory role um, in the front office for the Giants. He was able to sit in the stands in Berkeley and watch his son, Darren, who just actually played his first season of, of pro ball in the Washington national system. Mm. Dusty's former, another one of his former yeah. teams. Um, so he got to be there for his daughter's wedding. There were some things when he was out of baseball that he got to do, but um, how fortunate for the Astros that Dusty Baker was willing and available. It's been a huge difference. You can just tell, you know, the focus has been completely on the field. The players haven't flinched. Um, Dusty hasn't flinched. You mentioned how he was saying, hey, let's behave ourselves. You know, it takes someone with that level of integrity to be able to say that, because if I'm a fan and it's anyone else, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm listening to what they're saying. So and how is his garden now that he's back in baseball? I haven't been I haven't been up there in a couple of years, but uh, I will I will report back to you on that because we're, we're overdue for some some gardening and it's probably in far better shape than mine. I let mine go a little bit, but we've uh, we've had a lot of rain. So maybe I'll have some seeds that kind of just uh, decide to sprout anyway. But Dusty, Dusty uh, gave me some gardening tips and it, it's fun to talk to him about things that aren't baseball. And he's so well-rounded too that it, it makes him you know attractive to people who don't even follow sports as a personality yeah that's one thing I really cherished with the coaches that had the biggest impact on me football was a part of their life but it wasn't their whole existence they cared very deeply about what they did 
they, you know, obviously work very hard, hard at their job and, and continuing their learning and all that. But the, the men who I still call, still talk to, all cared about me off the field, all had lives off the field, social lives, friends, um, people outside of the sport. Uh, I think it's, it, it can become a little claustrophobic when a coach is so focused on just one thing that as a player, uh, you don't know what to talk to them about. You don't know what to go to them about. So I'm sure Dusty's office is full all the time with guys wanting to talk about their relationships or, you know, challenges they're having with their kids, <laughs> you know, I'm, and that's such a nice thing for a coach or a manager to have that open door as a player, but it doesn't just have to be, Hey, I'm not hitting the curveball. I need a little help. You know, it's just, it, it becomes a broader, more human experience. I think for the players with someone like Dusty. Absolutely. And, and you're a former athlete. I'm, I'm a former low level athlete, but um, you, you remember those coaches who, influenced you that way just even talking to Braves catcher Stephen Vogt last night about Bob Melvin another manager who is has this rapport with players I mean they these kind of managers mean the world to players that um, conversation with Stephen Vogt last night was still fresh in my mind uh, that it kind of made me think of of how much these players cherish getting to to have a manager like that and what was his reaction how did he feel last night he's just thrilled for bob melvin and called him you know one of the most influential people in his life hmm. um for the way he he supports players and um all he asks of you is that you you come to play hard and you play for each other and that's pretty simple uh, he doesn't put grand expectations on. And the managers who, who find the ways to motivate guys without putting added pressure on them has to be a, a wonderful situation for, for an athlete. Yeah, there's so much um, data now and, and studies of different coaching styles. And that idea of, you know, I, I, I loathe the term tough love. Always have hated that because there's no such thing as tough love. <laughs> you can be tough mm -hmm. on somebody and you can love somebody, but those are two different things. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a former athlete and after covering sports forever, the coaches who, as you put very well, can motivate you without these incredibly onerous pressures and always thinking that person's going to yell over your shoulder. If you make a mistake, you become like, you know, you start worrying, well, if I make a mistake, I'm going to get yelled at and instead of, you know, growing. And, and, and it's, it, I think it's becoming more common, but it's still rare. I think, you know, I have kids, they play youth sports. I hear coaches yelling at nine-year-olds when they make mistakes and I just scratch my head and wonder when we can move past that and realize that positive reinforcement, being helpful and supportive, yes, you can still require a great amount of effort and, and focus and all that, but you can do it without the whip, you know, the proverbial Absolutely. whip. Who, who else have you covered that sort of stands out as a coach like Dusty 
um, that that went beyond just the 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 sort of sandbox of what we expect of coaches. Well, Steve Kerr and Tara Vanderveer are two who I get to see regularly, um, right at very different levels, but have a great respect for each other as well. Um, big fans of each other, and they they come, you know, they cross paths once in a while. But Steve is so aware of the world and what's going on and social issues and um, a coach who, you know, lost his father in, in a murder. Um, so he, he has been through so much as, as a human being, as an athlete as well, as a coach, but so wise to the world. And then, then you have Tara Vanderveer down, down the road and at Stanford who has, has coached women year after year and adapted and brought in NBA coaches and coaches from smaller programs like UC Davis to teach her something new. Mm. That is, that is amazing to see how Tara continues to grow and learn and adapt based on different players and strengths of her rosters year after year after year. And she finally led Stanford back to, to an NCAA championship this past spring, the first one for the program since 1992. Mm. And so that's a lot of years of winning for, for a hall of fame coach that didn't include the big trophy at the end. Mm. So um, those are, those are two coaches and Felipe Alou covering, covering him when he was the giants manager They've I've been very fortunate, Ed, to, to learn and observe and get to share stories from some of these these people who are just wonderful human beings who happen to work in sports. And also, I would think someone who has a more open mind, like Steve or Tara, more welcoming and open to reporters, I would think. They don't see you necessarily as the enemy. They see you as part of the process. I, I think you're right. And, you know, Tara is one who comes into a media session or post-game press conference and always tells us how happy she is to see us and how much mm -hmm. she appreciates the coverage. And Corey Close at UCLA, um, you know, there th these coaches of women's basketball and women's sports are making a huge difference every day trying to um, spread light of their programs that don't always get the same attention um, that the others do. Hmm. Yeah, it's important. When I was working at ESPN, we uh, were invited, me and another uh, announcer were invited to a Black Coaches Conference where we were there to talk to these minority coaches because you have coaches meetings with the announcers. And the more you share, the more you open up, the more you push forward the positive things you're doing, the more likely we as announcers are to talk about them on air. And it was really interesting. David Shaw was actually in that uh, session that I was in. Mm -hmm. And just to give a little bit of insight into how we worked as announcers, that we are impacted by how nice people are. We are impacted by how open and honest they are with us. And 
not that we may not be critical or, you know, make mention of a mistake their team made, but what we shared was we're far more likely to say positive things about your program and about you and what you're doing if you're open, honest, and give us information that's, that's meaningful. And it was sort of a learning curve for some of these younger coaches because they had been taught by a lot of their superiors, those guys are the enemy, don't tell them anything, don't trust them, they'll stab you in the back. You know, they, they'd had this sort of mantra repeated to them and their eyes, you know, it was just nice to see them light up. And then we had this, you know, great conversation after we presented where they were asking specific questions about, you know, what do we do with this? And, and it was such a smart thing to do to bring people together to start to see that the media can very much get the word out with the things you're doing versus, you know, holding it against your chest and not wanting to share anything. And uh, so I, I thought it was a really neat way for some younger coaches, some minority coaches to start to learn a little bit of the tricks of the trade of how, if you open up, you give us good stories, you give us positive stories, we are going to share them. They're coming out in the game. <laughs> you know, we got four hours to talk. Yes. Uh, and, and I think when I go on a college campus or see a coach, I, I say, share your, share your stories with me about somebody interesting on your team, because if I don't hear it from you, I don't necessarily know. And people, people want to hear these stories about kids, young adults doing great things um, that aren't just part of their sports endeavor. And I think that also brings in more interest from folks who don't even follow sports. That's one thing I try to do, Ed, is I want to bring in somebody to the sports page who doesn't usually read it because I'm giving them some kind of content that is unique and relatable to real life challenges, struggles, something to inspire, something to put a smile on someone's face. And that's kind of along the lines of what you just said. If we don't know about these things, we need some help from, from the coaches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you, uh, you, you bring up stories that, that step outside of sports Obviously, 2020 was a crazy year for all of us on many levels, but for people who covered sports and for fans, not being able to go to the stadium was a big deal. You know, it became something we didn't do. I, we have a college baseball team down the street at Cal, uh, uh, Cal State Long Beach, uh, and not going to those games was a big deal for us. But you, and I saw the story you wrote, you did something interesting you started collecting foul balls while you were there. How did that come about? What did you do with those foul balls? Whose idea was it that you would collect? I think you had over a hundred in your trunk at one point from what I read in the article, but how did that all come about? By chance, really, Ed. I, um, it was so strange to be in these empty ballparks and, and, and balls were flying everywhere. And I'd watch them bounce at different locations and I'd keep an eye on them and, nobody to chase them down. And uh, I had a friend, Kimberly McVicker, who had turned 52 lifelong A's fan. And she said, I've never had a foul ball in my life. And so I watched this foul ball land in the A's home opener, you know, probably kind of third baseline on a, a little walkway above the, the first level of seats. And I just, I kept my eye on that ball all night. And I, I went and retrieved it after the game. And I, 
had it waiting on Kimberly's doorstep the next morning. Mm. And um, it just sort of took off. These balls had to go into quarantine. They couldn't be reused. <laughs> given, <laughs> given the pandemic, these balls weren't, weren't available. So they were either going to go in a box in a storage unit somewhere. I don't know how they quarantined the baseballs, but I just started collecting them. I, I then kind of went through pro proper channels and cleared it with the A's and giants to be collecting. And um, I started keeping them in my trunk and handing them out to anybody I saw out doing work, um, whether it was a construction worker, uh, someone, a chef cooking or firefighters essential workers. I kind of focused on essential workers and just took a, I'd take it or, you know, any stranger. If I saw a guy in a Padres hat out at a cafe, I just mm. sort of, are you a baseball fan? I've got a foul ball for you. Mm. And I started snapping photos and um, sharing those photos on, on Twitter. And then it just sort of took off. And I've, I'm way behind on my list, but I was at probably 200 plus um, given away by the end of last season before wow. I ran out of balls. And then I collected some more this what? year on practice days. No, <laughs> I didn't fight. I didn't fight with fans for any ball. I was going to say, you have a job to do. I don't know if uh, fighting with a 12 year old for a foul ball is, uh, <laughs> is the right way to go. No, absolutely not. So I'm, I'm down to my last dozen or so from, from this year, from mostly from, uh, you know, practice days or, or batting practice, but I, I didn't want to be, getting into uh, taking foul balls from any fans who were back in the ballparks this year. So it was, um, but it was really special and fun and a way for me to connect with, with people and, and maybe shed some, some light on what these essential workers are doing and also put a smile on faces of baseball fans who could see that, you know, these balls were going to good use. What was the best reaction or two or three that you got while you were handing the balls out? Wow. There were some, some guys, um, a couple of guys who were working, uh, you know, they had a big garbage truck park taking a lunch break one day at, um, behind Encinal High School, which is Willie Stargell Field uh, in Alameda. And they just were overjoyed to, to have a piece of, of the ball game. And um, those two guys were, they were kind of posing with their balls mm. and huge smiles. And, you know, we don't always tell the, the guys who take our garbage cans every week, how much we appreciate them. Right. Um, mm. Then they're, they're in the trenches, literally yeah. <laughs> doing the dirty work. And so um I'm, I'm trying to think, but there, there've been, uh, one went to Germany to, uh, my friend Astrid's father, who was in his nineties and just a huge giants fan, hadn't been able to travel. Mm. And so one went to Germany and that was special too, um, to get one to, to him and, um, just to see the, the, the smile on his face to get something from, from a giants game that he loves to watch when he can. And yeah no idea when he'll get over to see one again. Um, yeah. I, I so. love that story. When I read it, it was just so touching and such a unique way to deal with 
what was just an incredibly challenging time for most people. Uh, so I really appreciate what you did uh, with those foul balls. It was just, uh, just a, 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 like you said, a very personal way, I think, to keep connect, people connected to the sport. Well, thank you. It was beyond special for me and uh, just didn't, didn't feel like, didn't feel like a project or a job. It just sort of came naturally to, to do it. So. Well, you mentioned your uh, garden is falling to pieces and I'm sure part of that is because you're not just a sports reporter. You're not just covering, you know, five, six sports at a time, but you're also a parent. And, you know, there's a lot to juggle and your job is not a typical job. It's not nine to five, you know, it might be five to midnight, (laughs) you know, how do you juggle Mm -hmm. that? How do you stay professional and also, you know, be a parent? That's a big challenge for a lot of us. It, it is. I have two preteen girls, uh, almost 13 and and 10 and a half. The second one born on Willie Mays' 80th birthday. Mm. I did not make it to the ballpark as planned. Uh, But my husband, Josh Dubow, is the other AP sports writer here. So we, he covers all the football. We try not to work the same nights too often, but tomorrow night is a Warriors home, Sharks home, Cal football home, and Stanford home. So um, the girls will have food ordered and the neighbors will be on alert that they're they're home and... uh, they will make do on their own for a few hours while we both work, but we, we tend to juggle it pretty well. Do you have to sit down and look at your assignments <laughs> say, okay, I can't, you cover this. I'll cover that. Is there sort of a, a stock trade going on to make sure not only you're covering all this stuff, but you know, the home front's covered. Absolutely. And um, that means we've got a lot of great freelancers who, uh, pitch in and and help us and it means sometimes that I'm not at every in recent years Bumgarner Kershaw matchup that I'd want to be during the regular season if that makes sense Uh, you know there you kind of have to prioritize what the biggest games are of the night and what might be able to be pushed to the back burner for a day sometimes Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a, a tricky one at times, but most mostly it works out. And uh, the girls are, are sports fans and flexible and have handled it all pretty well. And are either of them or both of them looking at you and dad's professions and thinking that's for me? The oldest one wants to either be a sports writer or an architect. Mm. And so <laughs> I don't know. Um they're both better, far better in math than I ever was or am to this day. And so time will tell. Um, the the uh, 12-year-old whose birthday is the end of January is, said a couple months ago, you know, for my birthday, I just want uh, Nets Warriors tickets to see D- Durant. And I said, well, good luck, kid. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. But uh, yeah, they've... They've had some uh, fun experiences tagging along on occasion, you know, on occasion to a practice with me here or there, maybe yeah. once a year or so. But um, yes, it's, yeah. it's been fun. And how are they at computer programming? The thing that chased you into sports writing? Wow. Uh, probably 
figuring out all of these Zoom classes and Google Chromebooks prepared them well during during uh, online school last year. But let's hope we don't have to to go back to that. And uh, we will see. They're better at computers than I am, though. So no surprise. You're not alone, Janie. Anyone with kids likely shares that sentiment. You can read Janie's work at APnews.com and follow her on Twitter at Janie McCap. That's at J-A-N-I-E-M-C-C-A-P. Thanks, Janie. During our chat, we talked about a great piece on ESPN.com. The article, Dusty Baker Makes These Houston Astros About So Much More Than a Scandal, is by Doug Glanville. Give it a read and learn more about a manager who has found a way to both challenge and support his players on and off the field. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. And you can follow the show on social media. For Twitter, at Let's Huddle With, the Facebook page, Let's Huddle With Ed Cunningham, and on Instagram, let's underscore huddle underscore with underscore it. And if you want to come right to the source, the show's webpage, go to believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. Scroll through their impressive lineup and search up Let's Huddle to get to the show's homepage. And reach out. Let us know what you think, any corrections, clarifications, guests, or topics you'd be interested in hearing. Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham is a production of True Stories Incorporated. And this episode was produced by me, and Ryan Lindsay of Fushaw Media, who also edits the show. The Believe team on the Let's Huddle Beat are producer Alex Tosopoulos, audio engineer Carter, Connor Haynes and Cam Rogers, marketing directors. Cam also hosts Golf Pets on Us on the Believe Podcast Network. And my first contact with Team Believe, Bron Husenstam, the chief exec. Thanks, everyone. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.